This episode of 1801 Live was originally recorded during a 12-hour podcast-a-thon streamed live on August 28th from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. The Give Black Podcast-a-thon benefited U of SC's One Creed, One Carolina campaign, which supports initiatives that elevate and encourage black students, faculty, and staff. Together, our five hosts and over 20 guests helped raise more than $10,000 for the campaign over 12 hours. Find more information on the podcast-a-thon and the link to donate at www.garnetmedia.org slash giveblack. How are you? Doing well, how are you? Doing well, doing well. We have been waiting for this. Um, the previous guest, Dr. Anderson, really led to a perfect transition into um, your segment of the podcast of Dawn, talking about all that you have done. And he is, I even mentioned a book where it shows you um, coming in as the first African-American um, woman on alongside the two other individuals to desegregate the university. So it's great to have you. I'm delighted to have the invitation. Thank you very much. So we'll first start with um, just giving a little bit of background on your, your livelihood, especially early childhood. And so going into the process, coming out of high school and going to um, college. And so if you can give us a little bit of insight of how the process was and all that had to go through with it. I know that uh, Matthew J. Perry, as well as your aunt, had to advocate for you and the two other students to come into the university. So could you um, please elaborate on all that was? Okay. I um, was asked to apply to the university uh, before I went off to my freshman year in college in Baltimore. And I did so, and the idea was we didn't know whether we would just be admitted because the other majority institutions in the South had already integrated. And so I did apply. They did uh, decline my um, acceptance. And that was when we proceeded with the lawsuit. It is interesting for me, as I always thought, if they accepted me, I probably would not have come because then we would have known it was open and we would have put that word out. But um, the lawsuit was the major activity. I learned while I was in Baltimore in college, College of Notre Dame, uh, which is now closed, is um, that the judge had said that I should be admitted. And then it took a long time for me to determine that I would go. And I think the defining moment came for me one evening at a church my aunt and mother took me to with a gathering of many people. And a senior citizen, an older woman stood up and she said, "Ms. Monty, are you going to go to the University of South Carolina? And she caught me, so I said, yes, I will. And that was the moment that I decided I would go. I was not committed to going to the University of South Carolina, but um, it was meant to be. And I think then after I was admitted, went through all the formal proceedings, I learned that Bob Anderson had an attorney and he 
was also considering a lawsuit, but once mine went through, that was not necessary and Jim Solomon came along. So the three of us showed up on registration day. And it was a quiet day. Um, there had been some incidents, somebody threw some dynamite. There were, of course, calls that were not nice. And I will say this because I think it's important to know calls that were not nice from both whites and blacks in the Columbia area. So it's important to, to keep in mind that people that you always think may be with you may not be. Doesn't mean that you don't uh, interact with them or somehow respect their opinions, but they may not be there when you look back. So you have to be fairly steadfast in going down the path that you wish to go down. And I think issues of race, class, and gender are still operative in all of these. And I think in my case, my family always stood a bit off to the side, busy with their work, the farm, the bank, the whatever. And um, so we maybe were a little bit outside of many of these societies. That's so powerful that you said someone had to ask you if you were going to go, um, because had someone not asked you, you might not have, you might not have gone. <laughs> we wouldn't I, be where we are. I think I would have continued to waffle back and forth on that uh, for a long time. And I was running out of time because I did have to then request my transcripts from the college in Baltimore. And the rumor floating around the university was, well, we haven't gotten the transcripts. Maybe she doesn't want us to see her grades. Maybe she was a bad student. And, you know, so rumors are always the things, you know, we can see it in the news today. If somebody doesn't do what you want, when you want, someone has an explanation that may have nothing to do with the truth. And so you can't be persuaded or dissuaded or, um, you know, bothered by it you go on. I think we are judged all the time by someone else's standards. Absolutely. And Dr. Treadwell, I wanted to say hi. <clears throat> I didn't get to introduce myself, um, but I wanted to share a photo. Um, so I was in student government when I, um, when we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the desegregation. So I actually have a picture of us together. I don't know if we can see it. Oh, yes, I can. Thank you. And, uh, <laughs> That's so very nice. That super cool. And, you uh, must just, send that to me now. I will. I've I will. seen it. <laughs> I will. I'm just really grateful to have been a, a student leader on campus, being able to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the desegregation again, because as we just learned with Dr. Anderson, we had been desegregated before and actually had a majority black campus. Who knew and who would have thought even now looking at, um, you know, the state of the university and, you know, things that we've been dealing with. I just tweeted that, you know, when is when is the University of South Carolina going to represent and mirror the demographic of the state of South Carolina like a flagship university should? Um, so just excited to have this conversation today. You know, one of the things I want to point out, and, and I agree with everything you say, the much more has to be done in terms of not only admissions, but retention. And retention is not just academic. It is, do I feel that I'm a part of this? But a major part of my success, I think, in staying grounded there were white students because there were no black students. I mean, the men were there, but they were somewhere else. And there were a number of community meetings with students from the university who were, um, who we met probably every week or every other week, 10 or 12 different people, white students, who just wanted to be friendly and to be sure I had a friendly face. So it's important for, for us to remember, we have to reach out to 
as we move our own case forward, we have to reach out. We have to have a network. I, may, I don't know what value it had, but I may not have been successful without now and then walking across the campus and seeing someone we could wave and speak and move on. That is an amazing point that you bring up, although representation is very key and very important, but also those friendships of just a diverse community, but those that um, accept you for who you are and show true allyship, no matter the circumstances, also crucial. Um, but I, Go ahead. I wanted to um, ask you about your position um, as the director of the Community of Voices at Morehouse. And so how did you get into that role? I know that that kind of ties a lot of your passions together, but if you could speak on behalf of the work that you do within that role. All right, I think um, the major part of my career, um, at least before the university was at um, the Kellogg Foundation. And there I began a great deal of work in community-based health programming and learned about more than I ever thought I needed to know about the health conditions of underserved communities and the absence of men in uh, health services and African-American men particularly. But I worked in all um, underserved groups because I felt it was important that we represent all of them. Um, I really came to Morehouse after retiring from Kellogg with the continued mission, but with greater emphasis on the work of improving the status and the health of men of color. Again, an emphasis on African-American men, but also on Latinos and Asian Americans and Native Americans. And one of the issues that I've really settled on has been that entire issue of incarceration, criminal justice. When I looked at the work that I was doing, I did not find men in the audience quite often. I did not see men as program directors. I was dispensing millions of dollars from Kellogg, but I couldn't find a black male project director in most cases. And so I had to make it my business to fill that gap and I did not fill the gap by getting in front of a camera or a room and saying, we need to do this, we need to do that. I quietly went about my way to do it because it does not require confrontation. So at the Morehouse School of Medicine, well, before I left Kellogg, we did a first major issue of the American Journal of Public Health on the health of men of color. When I arrived at Morehouse, I began the issue of prisons and we did a special theme again issue in the American Journal of Public Health. And we have continued our work across the nation and have really some good results. I emphasize criminal justice, I emphasize oral health. I look at the community and see what is it we don't have. And when I say the community, it's not necessarily always communities of color. Poor white people also don't have some of these services. How do we form alliances with them? So we've really tried to work across the lines. Have we called it a race-based strategy? No, but it is. And I think I keep coming back to this issue of collaboration because you don't get very far unless you have it. And you also don't get very far if you are always searching for the camera or the microphone or something else. 
you must work quietly and steadfastly. I always, on my way to the office, and I don't know how I got into this, but I say a prayer that hopefully I can change the life of just one person. I may never meet that person, but hopefully something that I do will change the life of someone. And, you know, then I, I go on about my work and hope to be guided by God's graces and using the senses that I have. So we have published a lot of work on criminal justice and prison reform. We have done a lot of work in communities, establishing clinics, outreach services that exist to this day. We are now obviously involved in this entire COVID effort and how can we in fact get into our communities and establish the causes and the opportunities and the work goes on. I would like to see more people work in the way that we have, and I'm not suggesting that they're not, but I would like to see lots of the energies that are now being directed um, toward, and I'm not being critical of marching in the streets. I would like to see people march to the jails, march to the schools, march there, not as a caravan, but as individuals who will say, what can I do to help someone today? Maybe I can't do it tomorrow, but what can I do today? I think we need some tangible outreach efforts. And that is what Community Voices has been about. It has been about hearing the voice of community and reaching out to bring them into the circle. And we think we've been reasonably successful. We've been viewed as a model for lots of work. And um, I think I've been blessed to be able to, to make a contribution. You absolutely have made a lot of contributions. Um, and just for you know, the younger people who are watching today, um, we've, we've recognized that throughout history, it's usually younger people like yourself who are making the changes that we wanna see in our country. Um, to really change history. So um, you, you kind of touched on it just now, but what other advice do you have for young people who are wanting to be a change in their communities, like you said, to keep it community focused and to help everyone regardless of race, but you know, particularly black people who've been um, disenfranchised for so long, but you know, what can we be doing in a meaningful way and kind of like from your, your guidance on what is most effective as well? One of the things that I always do, and I would hope that others will do the same, and it's possible. Whenever I walk into a room for a meeting, for whatever, I look around to see who is there. And I make a judgment, some calculation about, is this the right mix? If not, what do I need to do to change this mix? Or do I need to invest my time here? And generally, I say, what can I do to change this mix and work, about, work on it? I also think it's important to work on yourself as an individual. One of the things that I hear from university students there and elsewhere is the still kind of divisions between black and white students and African-Americans versus this and that. I have had to learn, and it is learned behavior, to reach across the racial line, to sit down and have a cup of coffee or a Coca-Cola or whatever. It may, you know, I have needed those alliances. 
And I think young people moving forward must intentionally build cross-racial, cross-disciplinary alliances. You have to be a strategic thinker. It will not happen if you just wait to stumble across it, at least nothing significant will. But you must be a strategic thinker. What do I want to see in this world? And how can I be at least a part of a ripple to make it happen? And I think we don't, one of the things that I always heard people say about me when listening through doors was, she's strategic and she's tactical. And I think those are two words that I think people should measure their work by. Do I have a strategy? Do I have tactics? It's not enough to say what's wrong out there. That's useless. We also all know what's wrong. What will you bring? And not only what will you bring, what must you bring? I think today that African-American boys and men in this country are perhaps in more danger than they were 20 years ago. Because now we have people who are, have a license to go out and do whatever they want to do. We've seen it too many times. And it's not, um, I'm not again trying to tar and feather any particular group, but I am saying I worry about our young black men and women. We don't have time to sit and say what they're doing to me. Our question is, what am I going to do about it? And as a student, you may say, well, I'm busy studying for my exams. Well, then do the best job you can studying for those exams so that you graduate well-equipped to do what it is the community needs. If you don't bring solid preparation with you, you will not last. The other thing that I say to people, and I, I speak my mind rather freely sometimes, but most of the time when I have been in work and critical situations, I am measured. You know, lots of things that I think I can't say, but with age, I can say more of it. I want people to understand, and, and, and it's important to keep that in mind, but you cannot always reveal your innermost thoughts or your innermost reactions you must occasionally um, even examine your innermost reactions because they may not be correct, but you also cannot say it. I recall one incident that taught me a real lesson when I was working at Kellogg and I traveled in the Mississippi Delta in the hills of Kentucky and driving around to find these communities in rural areas. I would see crosses burning on the side of the road. And I went back to the office and I talked about the crosses burning. And I learned that people were saying, do you think she really saw those crosses burning? And I learned a lesson, don't even tell them because it raises an issue that is not important. The crosses were there, I know they were there, I know what they meant, but it's not worth distracting the discussion by saying, because my goal was to make a change in those communities and get resources to do that. So one has to be careful about how one expresses things. My way of dealing with those reactions was to make double sure that I got resources to the people in those communities who were marginalized. And I would not have gotten it had I begun to take on um, every comment 
Some people would ask me in important strategic meetings with administrators and board members, why do you think it's like that in uh, Alabama where you are? And I would, you know, I could have said, well, it's racist discrimination, is that, I said, I guess it's embedded in the history of the region. And I let it go because I was not going to get drawn into a discussion that would lead nowhere. And if somebody wanted to bring it up as a racial issue, you bring it up, not me. I want to bring up the needs of the community. So you have to measure and you have to say, I know this is embedded in racism and racial practices, but I may not get anywhere by just talking about that. Racial healing begins when I change the situation of people so that they are no longer at the mercy of poverty and criminal justice and unequal system and other things. That's what racial justice is. Racial justice is not my sitting down and talking to you about how you make me feel. Because I'm gonna leave that room in the same situation I was when I came. What are we going to do to change it? And that's where I think our conversations need to go today. The so what is the important thing, the tangible so what. And if we don't have that, I'm not sure what some of this dialogue will do. If we sit down and have a discussion on racial justice, a friend of mine just said she worked on it in Asheville, North Carolina, and they've reached the point of paying reparations to African-Americans. We'll see whether it happens, but that's a tangible so what. What's the rest of it? We're having coffee and we're learning to talk to each other. I'm not saying that's useless, I'm saying, what is the so what as a result of those conversations? There must be a goal. There must be an outcome that is more than, I feel so much better that you told me how you feel about me. Doesn't change anybody's life. I'm sorry if we're just silent, but you, you're speaking so much knowledge. And even I know viewers are taking a lot from it because I'm seeing the comments are going crazy, but just, I speak for myself, but I'm learning so, so, so much from what you're saying. And especially during this time, this crucial time, all of your knowledge, and I know all of your advice um, will be put to the best um, work if installed into students like us um, right now during this time. But I know I talked with Mayor Benjamin earlier about the importance of uh, civic engagement but I know Lauren on here can speak for hours. She has uh, the Secure the Ballot that she's doing as well, but I just wanted to get your testament on, you mentioned the action part. So not just talking about feelings, talking about what ifs, what others are doing wrong, but putting the responsibility on what I can do to my full capacity in order to make change. And so to speak on behalf of maybe even the importance of civic engagement and anything else we can do in addition to our studies as students to make change. I will use an example from Columbia that um, I talked to some students about some time ago, and it was when you mentioned Mayor Benjamin, and there was some concern about expressed to me by um, students, I, I think all African-American students, there may have been a couple of others there, about the homeless and moving the homeless out of the street and what are they doing to the homeless. I said, you know, for me, the issue is not it, whether or not the homeless are being removed from the streets. The issue is, what are we going to do with the people who are being removed? 
and what can we do to join with the mayor to have an affirmative plan for change in the lives of those individuals. That to me is more important than saying these folks are being mistreated. They need a new circumstance. And it is so easy to take a leader and say, why are they doing this? As opposed to going to the leader and say, I have some concerns about this. What can I do to help change things? And that's the part that we don't often get to. So it is always important to find out what you, standing on your own two feet, can do. It's good to take a group with you, but if a group will not go, your feet can still go. They can take you there. It is important to understand that if the issue is somewhere downtown, standing here and talking about it won't help. Go there and change it. And that is what I really hope people will do. Um, take any issue, decide what you will do. And it may be for one person in trouble, it may be for a group, but you've just got to get moving. We're sliding backwards and we've got to get more affirmative in our actions. And when I say our actions, I'm speaking of a mixed crowd of actors. So you not only have to work with the people you're concerned about, you've got to make new friends. One of, I think, I don't often talk about strengths that I think I have, but I know this to be true. I have always worked with a very large network. My, we will call it Rolodex, but my list of contacts is extensive. And I worked on it and worked it. So you can't do it alone. Doesn't happen alone. Thank I'm you. <laughs> I, I wanted to mention that we're all here today and I know that you've made a big impact, not just on the university, but in world, made true history throughout your time and your experience. But currently we are here to raise money for the One Creed, One Carolina campaign, which is to uplift programs that directly impact one of many marginalized communities, but the black members of the U of SC community. So can you just attest to how important that is, especially during this time? And just your uh, testament of you being one of the first to now having these programs and the importance of uplifting them. This is just being the beginning. And so now the work moves forward. Well, let me start by saying that people like the two of you and other students are my pride and joy because you are there and you are doing more. We must put our money where our mouth is. And if my money is a dollar, a $2, a $5, or a million dollars, we've got to put it where it is needed. It not only brings about change, but it says to people, I am investing in change. And so I think it is extremely important that we have efforts such as this one and that we put our resources there. And when the dollar is paid, then also look and see if there are other things you can do. And if you don't have the dollar, what can you think of that you could do that could help someone and make that known? 
I believe that there is no more important effort than one of supporting things that help to uplift not just our community, not just the African-American community, but this is a case where when we change the lives of one, we can change the lives of many. And it's an opportunity and it's not one to be missed. And so I don't have a lot of funds to invest here and there, but I spread it around as best I can in order to make sure that um, people know I'm standing with them. And I give to diverse groups. So think about what you have and take that dollar and split it in as many ways as you can. But we can do it. We'll pay for a football ticket. So we can do other things. <laughs> You are right about that. Um, today is also 828 Giving Black Day. So we appreciate that message of investing, putting your money where your mouth is, because we're not going to see um, the change we want to see unless we're invested in it. Um, but thank you so much, Dr. Treadwell. It was so good to see you again. I'll send you this photo. Um, Hanny, you'll have to give me her email address so I can send it to you. But super grateful to be sharing this moment with you again and have some time to talk with you. I thank you all very much for the opportunity. Have a wonderful and prosperous day. Amen. Thank you, you so too. much. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.